Well, please turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Paul's letter to the Colossians. And we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. We are beginning a brand new series of sermons here at First Pres through Paul's letter to the Colossians that we are calling Christ Above All. The supremacy of Christ is the theme of Paul's letter to the Colossians and it's something that we want to discover over the next several weeks and months together as we explore this book. You know, when the elders of the church decide on which book of the Bible we're going to preach through, it's usually a little bit more involved than simply grabbing a Bible and flipping through it and whichever page your finger lands on, you preach through that book. It's more intentional than that. We, we want to strike a good balance between preaching through the Old Testament and the New Testament, not to get too skewed on one of the two sides there. But we also look at the Bible and we look at the church and we think about what particular issues are going on in the life of the church, what particular needs people have, and we look at which particular book of the Bible might specifically address those Issues And so we landed on the letter to the Colossians because I think that one of the things that challenges us here at First Pres Biloxi, and it's not unique to our church, it's common to just about every church, is the difficulty we have of integrating our theology into our practical lives. The, the, the challenge that we have of integrating what we intellectually know about Jesus Christ into the level of our hearts so it changes us as we go about living our lives. Um, I was hounded just about every day this week uh, via email by someone who was trying to get me to buy a curriculum for our church on 21 steps to becoming a healthy single parent. Apparently there are 21 of those steps. I don't know if you knew that, but there are. And that's a lot of steps to remember. I can't remember that many steps. Uh, but even if I could, the fact of the matter is, is that you can't reduce the Christian life to a list of steps that you fulfill. That's not what the Christian life is about. It, it is at least in part about the living out of a dynamic covenantal relationship between you and Jesus Christ, your Lord. I don't have any relationships in my life, and you probably don't either, where it's all about checking off a list of things to do. It's much more organic than that, and that is what Paul wants us to see here in the letter to the Colossians. That Christianity is more about just living out a list of principles. It's about a deep personal knowledge of Jesus Christ and treasuring Him above all things, and that's what Paul puts on display for us in the letter to the Colossians. And so what I want to do today is introduce you to this letter, and we'll begin where every good letter begins, which is with a greeting. And so our passage before us today is Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It's very short. Let's give attention now to the reading of God's Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Amen. And this is God's word to us this morning. Mike is a middle-aged, college-educated man who works in a management position for a major shipping company. He makes a pretty good salary, maybe around 90 grand a year. He's been with the company for a long time, and 
And it's a good job, a well-paying job. It's not his dream job. There are other things that he would rather do, but it's definitely good and stable, and he's thankful to have it. He's been married to Jennifer for about 20 years, and they have a good marriage. It's not a great marriage. It could be better, but it's definitely not awful. And they both realize that they're much happier being together than they would be if they parted ways. Um, They have two teenage children, and anybody who's the parents of two teenage children knows that those kids are going to drive them crazy and give them fits. And of course their kids do that, but by and large they're good kids, they stay out of trouble, and they have great pleasure in raising those two teenage children. Mike likes to go fishing. He's a big fan of SEC football in the fall. He loves to watch that. Jennifer loves to curl up with a good book. She loves cooking. She loves to get together with her friends every Wednesday for lunch at the local cafe down the road. And every Sunday, they pack up their family of four and head off to church, and they sit in the same place, in the same pew every Sunday. Don't you do that? Why do people do that? But they do. They sit in the same place every single Sunday. And they hear and sing four or five songs, and they pray, and they hear usually a pretty decent sermon from their pastor. And after church, they go and they grab some lunch. They go home and take a Sunday afternoon nap. They watch a little TV. They do some household chores, and they go to bed, and they start the whole work week off again. That's their life. It's not that bad of a life, is it? I mean, it's, it's, it's not that bad of a life. In, in an economy where around 9% of people are unemployed and people Mike's age are getting laid off of companies that they've been working for for 20 years and trying to find a new career to go into in this economy, they're pretty thankful for what they have. And they, they look around at some of their peers and some of their friends and they discover that they have it a lot better than a lot of other people who are at their stage of life. But still there's this underlying discontent that lies there. There's, there's still this discontentedness because they feel like somehow life was meant to be a little bit more riveting, a little bit more engaging and exciting than just working 50 hours a week and keeping up a house and making sure the kids are doing the things they're supposed to be doing and, and paying the bills and, and going to the same church with the same people every Sunday and then laying your head on the pillow and pressing the rewind button where the same thing happens every week. This is why people have a midlife crisis. This is why people, men in their 50s, go out and buy a Corvette and a motorcycle, and why women in their 50s and 60s go and get nipped and tucked. Because they feel like they're, if they change the outward external circumstances of their life, then somehow their life will be more full and robust and meaningful and exciting. It speaks to the longing that everybody has. I think everybody wants to live a a purposeful, meaningful, satisfying life. If that's how you feel this morning, there's nothing wrong with you. Everybody wants that. Nobody wants to live a pointless life. And I think that that is exactly how the author of this letter feels. The Apostle Paul wants to live a meaningful life. He writes this letter when he's in his mid-50s. So he's at the middle of his life, at least in terms of ordinary chronology. And we look at him and and his life was far from easy. 
I mean, he, he did not live the simple, easy life. And sometimes I have to wonder what I would have done if I would have been in the shoes of the Apostle Paul. Because Paul was a man who was often ridiculed. Whenever he went to churches, he got kicked out of them for preaching things that they didn't like to hear. He was nearly killed in a shipwreck. Sometimes he was darn near homeless. He didn't have a place to lay his head. And at the time that he writes this letter, he's locked up in a musty, damp prison in Rome, of all places. It does not sound like the American dream to me. But that is Paul's life. So you have to wonder, why was he willing to undergo all of this hardship? He he undergoes all this because he doesn't want to live an insignificant life. He wants to live a life with purpose and meaning and passion and not just so that he can get to the end of his life and pat himself on the back and look at his record and go, wow, look at all this great stuff that I did. He lives like that because he has such an acute passion for Jesus Christ that he's willing to give up the comforts of this world in order that Jesus would be glorified through his life and so that other people would come to treasure him as well. I think so much of the reason why Paul has this affectionate, passionate satisfaction in Christ is because he understands that Christ took the initiative to pursue him when he was, as we discovered last week, the chief of sinners. Paul knew that about himself. That was part of his self-understanding. And he understands that while he was yet a sinner, Christ died for him, adopted him as a son gave him all the privileges of belonging to the family of God, of being a child of God, and and he put his hope in Jesus. And because of that self-understanding, because he understood that his identity was different because of what Jesus had done for him, that seasoned his life so much so that he wasn't going to waste it by spending all of his time and all of his energy and all of his effort on changing the circumstances and the externals of his life in order to make sure that his life was full and meaningful. Jesus is what satisfied him. He wanted other people to know that. And he wanted all these new churches that had cropped up all throughout what is modern-day Turkey and Greece, he wanted all these people to know that their needs and their joy and their direction is tied up in knowing Jesus Christ. And treasuring him above all things. It's, it's tied to having Christ and his spirit flowing through our veins to such a degree that when we are pricked and pressured, that what comes out of you is the flavor of Jesus Christ. That's what he desires for his life. That's what he desired for these new churches that crops up. I think that's what God desires for us as First Presbyterian Church in Biloxi, Mississippi in 2011. That's why Paul writes this letter, that people would get to know him like this. As a sidebar comment, I think it's worth knowing the way in which he addresses the people here. He says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's a rather important thing to keep in mind, because the the church had recognized his apostolic authority to bring inspired, authoritative words from God to his people. 
The, the apostolic age ended with the death of the apostles. There are no more apostles out there. There's no one. There, you may see these people on the weirdo Christian TV stations who may call themselves apostles and may proclaim to bring you some direct revelation from God that it, it goes beyond Scripture, but that's nonsense. The, the, the apostolic age ended with the death of the apostles, but when Paul speaks... He speaks with the authority of God as if God himself were speaking those words right to us. And so what he's doing by saying that he's an apostle is he's saying to these people, look, I'm giving you Scripture. I'm giving you the very words of God. This comes with an authority. And it's not my authority. It comes from the authority of God Himself. And so you need to perk up your ears and you need to open your minds and hearts and you need to listen to what I'm about to tell you. Because this is important stuff. You're, th- this is life and death kind of stuff. You live your life under authority. Everybody lives their life under some kind of authority. And the authority that we are to live our life under is God. Because He wants to bring us His Word and He wants to show us that our joy is tied up in enjoying Him. It's important because even though so many of us, there, there are probably very few people in here this morning that would say that the the Bible is untrue, I don't believe it, and it's just got a few good things in there, but by and large, it's just a bunch of myth. Most of us wouldn't say that. Most of the people here this morning, if I were a betting man, I would say that you believe that the Bible is is true. It's something that you assent to. So we can affirm that, but the fact of the matter is, is that so many of us are so prone to ignore it. I mean, our natural inclination is to close our ears and our minds and our hearts off to God's voice into our life. There's so many ways we can do it. We can do it by rarely, if ever, reading His Word. We can do it by neglecting the worship of God together like what we're doing now on the Lord's Day. We can do it by picking and choosing the parts of the Bible that we like and casting off the parts that we don't, like we're at the local buffet. There's all sorts of ways in which we can do that where we can say that we're Bible-believing Christians but not be particularly Bible-believing. It's hard to be a Bible-believer, someone who who banks your life on the, the Word of God in a day when so many competing voices are coming at us. Because at just about every waking moment of your life, a sermon is getting preached to you. And it's getting preached that the gospel of deliverance and fulfillment comes as you worship the body, as you worship approval, as you worship the mind, as you worship food or or health or success or money or or sex or sports or entertainment or anything under the sun. You fill in the blank. You know what it is. It's what you hear all the time. And you're, you're preached at. You're told that if you cling to those things, then you're going to be blessed. And if you reject them, then you will be cursed. You don't have to go out and find that. That voice gets preached to you all the time. You don't have to seek it out. So the question is, what are you going to do about that? What are you going to do about it? You know, if we're a bunch of sheep, as Jesus refers to us as, and if we understand that sheep will literally follow one another off a cliff to their own death, that's how stupid and foolish they are, 
then that means that we need to hear the voice of our shepherd. We need to keep following the good shepherd in the midst of the competing voices that we hear. We need to follow the good shepherd and we do so by knowing his voice. You've got to know his voice. We do it by knowing his voice well enough so that we can discern between the false shepherds and the good shepherds out there who are calling us in every which direction. And the voice of the good shepherd is found in his word. It's found in his word to us. Paul the Apostle brings us this word, the word of the shepherd, to the church in Colossae, and he brings it to us. And we do well to read it, to make it part of our DNA, to, to meditate upon it, to pray through it, to listen to it as it's read and preached to you Lord's Day after Lord's Day so that it gets so impressed upon our hearts that it really becomes part of our fabric. It becomes part of who we actually are. Because we need that word. We need to bank our life on that word if we're going to be able to withstand the garbage that gets pitched to us every single day of our life. We need to have a whole new mentality as, as followers of Christ. We go into life so much as if we are living in a peacetime, as if everything is at peace. But the fact of the matter is, is that when you plumb the depths of Scripture, you understand that life is a war. It's a battle. And if it weren't, then Paul wouldn't tell us to put on the full armor of God all the time as he does in Ephesians chapter 6. We need the armor in order to be able to combat and withstand and succeed against the junk that gets tossed at us all the time. We need to remember that we have an enemy. We have an enemy, and he does not like you. He wants to pounce on you. He wants to tear you up. He wants to chew you up. He wants to spit you out. But he doesn't come to you like that. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He doesn't come to you wearing the skull and crossbones shirt. He comes to you dressed in khaki pants and a nice button-down shirt. And he plays golf and drinks a $4 latte from Starbucks. He's the kind of guy you would like. He comes to you disguised as an angel of life. That's why he appeals to your senses and he appeals to your desires. He appeals to your natural longings and gets you to worship those above worshiping Christ. His scheme is to get you to buy into it so wholesale that it robs you of your satisfaction in Christ. And eventually what he wants to do is destroy you. And so we need to be people who stand upon the Word of God in order to withstand the enemy's schemes and reject his message and so that we'll find contentment in God. I think we need to remember that we... You don't move from happy meal Christianity to filet mignon Christianity on the osmosis program. Does that make sense? You don't grow and mature and have a full, deep Christian life because you live in the Bible Belt and because you exist. That's not how it works. It happens when we gobble up the Scriptures and we feast upon it and we delight in it because it's God's actual words to us. But you've, you've heard that before, right? You've heard the message preached before if you've been in church three times in your entire life. 
that you need to read your Bible. And me standing up here telling you that just either makes you feel guilty or makes you feel numb because you've heard it before. But I think part of the reason why that's the case is that we're we're just so prone to live our Christian life in in a very individualistic way. A a privatized faith. And we've, we've bought into the idea that iron really doesn't sharpen iron and, and we've lost sight of the fact that we're part of an organic body that's dependent upon other parts of the body in order to help us grow and in order to help us feast upon the Word of God. I'm not a doctor, so I'm, I'm leaving my area of expertise here, but I know this much. If you amputate part of the body or you remove part of it, then guess what? It shrivels up and it dies. It it no longer has the sustenance to be able to grow on its own. And so what I've discovered is that that's so much true about the church. The, The people who have the greatest love for the Bible and the Word of God and who embrace it as individuals are people who are most intentionally connected to the body of Christ. They're most connected to the church. That's why, in addition to making the reading of Scripture, priority for your life, you need to prioritize life in the church. And especially what we're doing now, gathering together to worship on the Lord's Day. You know what you could have done this morning? What you could have done in the comfort of your very own home and at at the time of your own choosing was to turn on some Christian worship music that you may like better and that is played better and sung better than anything that you heard here. You could have gotten on your computer and downloaded a sermon from Ligon Duncan or, or Tim Keller or John Piper and, and heard a much, much better sermon than anything that you will ever hear from me. You could have done that all on your own timetable and you wouldn't have had to come here and interact with people who you don't know and who are different from you and have the awkwardness of the interactions. You wouldn't have had to deal with the whole gathering up the family and hoping that you can pile them into the minivan and rush them off to church on time and get everybody to where they need to go. And with gas prices the way that they are, you could have saved some money. And you could have done this all in your pajamas this morning. So why even bother coming here? Why, 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 why do that? Because there's a dynamic that happens when we gather together as a body of, of sinful people, broken people who need God and each other. To sit under the Word of God brought to you, preached to you by someone who's entrusted to care for your souls, who's entrusted to pray for you, to, to come here to engage with each other, as the church, and to connect with each other so we can carry each other's joys and carry each other's sorrows. So that we can own for ourselves each other's challenges and and successes. See, the the church, the local church, my friends, is, is God's divinely created discipleship program. That's, that's what it is. It's where the apostolic teaching that we hear from the Apostle Paul gets impressed upon our souls and so that we'll grow together. Let me ask you this, just by way of Bible trivia for the day to take with you. Is the emphasis in the Bible 
placed more on your own private individual worship? Or is it placed more on worship together as the church? Is, is the emphasis more on your individual worship or is it more on your worship together as the church? My friends, overwhelmingly, the emphasis is on our corporate worship together. Being together as the church. Sitting together as brothers and sisters, old and young, black and white, under the authority and under the, the, the word of God itself. And, and so I want to challenge you I want to challenge you to make this the most important hour of your week. Don't let other things unnecessarily encroach upon it. Don't make it a a two out of four Sundays kind of thing that you do when you don't have anything else going on. Make it something that you understand that God has given to you for your own well-being, for your own growth and grace. For your own joy. Because if you neglect it, my friends, you will lose it. You will lose it. This is important for your kids, too. If you have kids, this is important. Because if your kids are not shown by you that doing life together and worshiping together is part of the regular rhythm of your life, then why in the world would you expect that when they grow up and move out of your house that they would value the same thing? Why do you think that they would value worshiping with God's people, growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ in the context of the local church, if you're not putting that on display for them now? This isn't the 50s. You don't have to go to church to fit in. and In fact, you'll probably fit in a lot better if you don't. And so if you, if you want your kids to, to love Jesus, show them what it's like to be the church, to live it out together. Paul's writing this inspired, God-breathed Word of God to the church corporately so that you and I could apply it in our individual lives. That's why he's bringing it to him. He's an apostle by the will of Christ Jesus as Lord. Let me shift gears just for a minute here to introduce you to the people that Paul is writing to. Paul is writing this letter to a church in the city of Colossae. It's, it's on the Lycus River in central Turkey, what is now central Turkey. And it was written in about 62 AD. So it's written about 30 years after Jesus is crucified and is resurrected and he ascends into heaven. This church was about 10 years old when Paul wrote the letter. So it's a church that's moving out of the new church plant stage and into the more established church phase. And it's a church that wasn't actually started by Paul. It was started by a guy who heard the gospel preached by Paul in Ephesus, a guy by the name of Epaphras, who we'll get introduced to here in a few weeks. What happened was Epaphras was in the city of Ephesus, hearing Paul's preaching. Ephesus is about 100 miles away, and he comes to see that he's a big sinner. He comes to see that Jesus has come to forgive sin, to declare him righteous, to make him acceptable to God, to give him the hope of glory. And so what Epaphras does is he goes back to his hometown of Colossae and he gets back into his network of friends and family and and people in his life and he begins to tell them about Jesus. He begins to tell them about their need for Jesus. Now, you have to ask yourself, why in the world would someone do that? 
I'm pretty sure that these people in Colossae could really have cared less about Jesus. They, they weren't even thinking about Christ. So why would Epaphras take the gospel back to his hometown, back to his community, and try to persuade people to believe in Jesus Christ? Well, he could have just had a profoundly legalistic view of the Christian life where his status before God was based upon what he did or did not do. That could have been how he believed himself to be. Or it could have been because he had discovered something about himself like we discovered last week. That, that Epaphras himself saw himself as, as the chief of sinners, the foremost of sinners. And he actually believed that. And he believed that that was common to everybody. It was common to the people in his hometown. But he knew that Jesus had not only come to save him from the condemnation that he deserved, but he also came to save everyone who will repent from trusting in themselves and begin to trust in Christ. See, he he had this deep love and appreciation and gratitude for what Christ had done for him in the gospel. And that love led him to love his neighbor so much that he wanted his people and his life to know Christ as well. And you know what happens by the grace of God? A church crops up in this city of Colossae. And what you discover as you keep reading in chapter 1 a little bit is that this is a relatively healthy church. This is is a church that's, by and large, on the right track. But as every church and as every Christian is prone to do, that church was tempted and it often embraced false teachings. It embraced the popular thought of the culture and the the world of that day. And so what we're going to discover as we go along is that Paul addresses some of these things that the Colossians were prone to embrace in addition to Jesus. See, the the Colossians' biggest temptation, and it's your biggest temptation as well, your biggest temptation as a Christian is to embrace a Jesus plus something else gospel. I worship Jesus and my job. Jesus and my kids. Jesus and my stuff. Jesus and my ambitions. And we don't even realize that we're doing it, but we are prone to do it all the time. What you get at the end of the day of a Jesus plus Christianity is a completely Jesus less Christianity. A Christless Christianity. You start mining the Bible for quotes to help affirm the things that you've already told yourself that you believe. You turn Christianity into a 21-step self-help Dr. Phil program for you. you. You can get a Christianity like the the great theologian Richard Niebuhr referred to, which is a Christianity where a God without wrath brought men without sin into a world without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. There are thousands across our city sitting exactly where you are right now who believe that. Maybe that's you. And that's not Christianity. Jesus plus something else Christianity gets you a Jesus-less Christianity. It was something that Paul could not stand to see in this church. And he wanted the people to get weaned off of that ugly mentality that's so subtle 
that's so easy to capitulate to and to get them to treasure Jesus Christ alone and say, Jesus is enough for me. He's the satisfier of my soul. And you need to delight yourself in Him. That's going to be the theme of this letter. It's what I think you need to see. It's what I need to see for sure. And he combats those issues, but before he does that, he calls them this. Saints and faithful brothers in Christ. We live in an area where there are a lot of schools and organizations that are called Saint This or Saint That. Um, Our friends and other church traditions have the view that the, the church leaders conspire together to deem someone who has lived an especially holy life, they call that person a saint. And those saints are often venerated or prayed to and asked to intercede on our behalf. Um, There are specific saints that are called upon if you are a a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker. There's saints that you call upon if you live in an area especially prone to earthquakes or hurricanes. Uh, There are Saints that you call upon if you have a particular type of cancer or heart problems or some other illness. It's perilously similar to the polytheism that all pagan people everywhere believe. But that's not biblical. When you plumb the depths of Scripture, what you discover is a, is a saint, is a person that God has chosen for himself. That God has taken the initiative with to bring out of bondage when they had no interest in Him whatsoever and to bring into light. To, to set us free from shackles so that we would be set free to embrace the Gospel. Being called a saint, something that's true of everyone who believes and, and reminds us that it's God who pursues, God who initiates, God who gives us His grace and His promises. And what Paul wants us to understand is that if you know Christ then you have this new identity. You have this new title. You're called a saint. It's a a new way that God wants you to understand yourself. And because you're a saint, what He's given to you is grace and peace. God has given to you His grace and peace. Let me tell you something. If you are at all like me, you're probably someone who can get down on yourself pretty easily. You can look at your life, at your record, at the things that you've done and left undone, and you can feel like a a pretty significant doofus. You look at your life, and maybe it's kind of a mess right now, and it's a mess because of things that you've done. It's self-inflicted stuff. You know your failures. You know the things that if anybody else in this entire room found out about them, that you would just die of horror and embarrassment. All of us have those skeletons in our closet. And so we play it close to the vest. And we kind of do the Adam and Eve thing where we go and we cover up those things and then we point the finger, point the blame at somebody else. But here's the deal. What Jesus allows you to do is to stop the cover-up and stop the blame-shifting because you are under grace. If you believe Him, you're under grace. You're already accepted. You're not under the law. That doesn't mean that, that means that you don't have to go out and justify your existence by the good things that you do and the bad things that you avoid. Now you go and you do the good things and you avoid the bad things because you've been given a new identity. 
You've been given a new name. You've been given a new status and a new position, which is a saint who's under grace and you've shifted your trust from yourself over to Him. That's what I pray would happen in my life and in your life. At first prayers, as we, as we spend the next few months going through this letter, that, that, that we would start to see that we have a God who actually quiets us with His love and rejoices over us with singing. Who's delighted by us because He's given us so much grace and so much forgiveness and that that would pump into us the desire to live Christ-like, Christ-glorifying lives. He's also given us, in addition to His grace, His peace. That doesn't mean that we live a smooth sailing life. Every, just about every godly person you see in the Scripture lived, lived a, a crazy difficult life. And it was due in large part to their faithfulness to God. But the thing is, is that the, the peace of God comes to you from the God of peace. The peace of God comes to you from the God of peace, the one who broke down the wall of hostility and established peace and, and, and reminds us that nothing can separate us from Him. At first prayer, what we do after every service, at the end of every service, is that we, we close with a benediction. Benediction, good word. We don't do that because we like formality and we just don't know any other way to end the service. We, we do that intentionally because the fact of the matter is, is that you're stepping back into a war zone the moment you leave this place. Within one hour from now, I promise you, something is going to come at you that is going to strike at your satisfaction in Jesus Christ. It will happen. You will bark at your wife or your husband or your kids because... You need them to do or be what you have already decided you need them to do or be in order that you can have peace in your life. Or you'll go home, as I did last Sunday after church, to find that in the middle of July in Mississippi, your air conditioner breaks down. And it will take me or you beyond just being uncomfortable And it will make us angry. Because we've told ourselves that in order to have peace, it needs to be 72 degrees in our house. Something will happen in an hour from now, tonight, later this week, all throughout your life, to undermine your satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And what you need to remember, my friends, what I need to remember is that peace in the present and peace eternally will never come from this life. It will never come. It comes in fits and starts. The moment you get it, you snap your fingers and it's gone again. What our our couple that we met at the beginning of the service, Mike and Jennifer, need, what you and I need in order to pull us out of our rut, is to absorb that the only constant in your life, in this life and in the next, is that Jesus Christ Himself is our peace. Our security is in Him. His grace to us is ours. His presence is always with us. And He will never leave you or forsake you. And when you know that to be true, that He has given you His peace, 
at the cost of his very own life, then you can have peace. Not because of your circumstances, but despite them. I'm excited about taking this journey through Paul's letter to the Colossians with you. And I I pray that you will see God as being more delightful, more worthy of your worship than you did before. Let's take a moment now to pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you give us your word. You have providentially allowed us to live in a time and place where we have such abundant access to it. We can, we can actually hear your voice. You speak directly to us through it. God, our hearts are so hard and, and stony and rejecting and indifferent. And, and we don't want to be like that. We pray that you would soften us so that, so that you would be our delight. That we would treasure your grace and that you would be our peace. Father, do this for your sake, for your glory, for our well-being, and for the sake of those who don't even know you. We ask this all in the name of him who came such a distance for us, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.